0: Let me invite you to stay in the New Testament And if you would, turn to the last book of the Bible One more time, at least for now Definitely don't want to say we would not come back One more time for now, turn to the book of Revelation The last book of the Bible, if you would, please And again, we have a a new sermon this morning, similar text to last week. So if you'll turn to chapter two, last week we looked at chapters two through three. But I intentionally limited our look in that sermon to those two chapters, a big overview sermon of Revelation two through three. Intentionally left something out that we would look at today, maybe a bit of a prequel, you might say. I want to expand it to chapter 1, verse 9 through 322. And notice that we really can't fully understand chapters 2 and 3 unless we see it on its own terms and also what comes just before it at the end of chapter 1. So we truly say, May the Lord help us. Let me also add, I've already said a lot by the way of announcements, it's already been a joy to worship together, as the scripture says, in spirit and truth. Let me also say that, again, we we don't want to, unfortunately, linger too long. We'll have opportunity to see and rub shoulders at the Holiday Inn Express. It would be great uh, if we could have some go ahead and, right after the service, help us to set up for tonight. I don't think I mentioned that earlier. But again, this is something that if you didn't know about it, you are absolutely welcome. At six o'clock tonight, we're going to have a church potluck. And we're also going to say farewell uh, to two of our dear Air Force families. And so we're going to hear just briefly from them. They're just going to share with us very briefly about what's going on in their lives in this time of transition. Again, that's six o'clock tonight, uh, church family potluck dinner and then we'll, uh, we'll circle the chairs in the back after we eat and just have a brief time together. So again, for those uh, who could help us right after the service, set up the tables and also maybe go ahead and circle up the chairs. We'd appreciate that. For everyone who's physically able, let's stand uh, for the word this morning. And since once again, we'll be uh, looking at least in part at what we did last week, which is chapters two through three of Revelation, let's just take a small sample, and that'll be verses eight through 11 of chapter two. So would you look there with me at Smyrna, Revelation two, eight through 11, and this will just be a sample for us to stick our foot into the water. John writes, and ultimately comes from the Lord Jesus himself, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.8, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Keep your Bibles open there, and would you remain standing for prayer? Let's pray together. Our great God, we bow before you, and we pray that you would give to us, by your grace, a true uh, reverence and a true gospel fear and humility trembling before you. Thank you for your great and precious promises which are given even this morning to everyone who will believe. Even as we've read here, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord, help us to see that it is appropriate. It is appropriate to be happy in you, to rejoice in you with all of our strength. And also to tremble before you because you are great. And we pray that through your word, you would give us a true vision of you. Lord, as we've already said today, we pray that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. We would not rest in our own works, but in what he has done for sinners. Help us in this time, Lord. We are weak, I am weak. Would you open your word to us? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, if you would. So many things to announce today. It's good to see the newly minted Finch family here today. Who used to be Mary Burroughs. Also uh got home today that I, don't know, I Eddie Burroughs. Eddie Burroughs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if we could please get formal again. Stop this. Throw me off here, James. No, I'm kidding. All right, look at uh, verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1. So I said you could look at this maybe almost as a bit of a, a prequel. I want us to understand chapters 2 through 3 even better by seeing the end of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 17. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a man uh, named Greg Wills, uh, who's a teacher that I had, I worked also for him, and he did a lot of uh, research on what churches used to look like, faithful churches used to look like 200, 150 years ago. Listen to what he says, Greg Wills says this, and the reason I bring this up is because it's a good thing to be concerned about the purity of the church. Nothing wrong with being concerned about the purity of the church. In his research, he found this. Uh, Presbyterian churches would uh, do church discipline. And so these Presbyterian courts conducted judicial proceedings in private, but they announced before the church and the world all excommunications and some suspensions. Do you get that? So, so they would handle matters. That's what it means when it says the courts. They would handle matters of church discipline in private, but then they would announce the names of, Well, to everybody. There was a great dread of this practice. The practice was called publishing. And there was a great dread of this practice. In fact, so great, he writes, that when Benjamin Morgan Palmer, uh, Mr. Palmer was the pastor of the New Orleans First Presbyterian Church, when he intended to publish a member suspended for drunkenness, the offender warned the pastor to desist conducted these private meetings, determined the man's drunkenness uh, means that he needed to be suspended from the church. We're going to follow our normal pattern. We're going to publicly announce the names. And the man said this to the pastor. He said, I will arm myself and I will take a seat in the gallery over the pulpit. If you intend, if you attempt to read the paper, I shall fire upon you. I will sit in the balcony with my firearm, and if you publicize my name as a suspension for drunkenness, you will meet with my bullet. Palmer, the pastor, unruffled, read the suspension without incident. So I mentioned that I bring this up uh, because there's never uh, a problem as long as it's done in love and for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with being concerned about the purity of the church. As you think about what we looked at last week, and if you weren't here, that's perfectly fine. We're looking again at Revelation 2 through 3. None of us can be as concerned. None of us, as well-intentioned as we might be, can be concerned for the purity of the church as much as the Lord God is. There's no one like the Lord Jesus Christ in particular who has a concern for the purity of his church. Even though we might in a reflective way, like a shadow of his pure concern. No, we read, for example, in Revelation 2 through 3 in these seven letters for seven churches. Seven letters for seven churches. That's what this is. We read this, the one whom I love, you know this? The one whom I love, the risen Lord Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. The one whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do not uh, despise the discipline of the church. And by implication, since so many of these churches are in not good shape, which we've already said, the weakness and the sin of these churches is in a weird way an encouragement to us who do not have it all together. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity or you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me be clear. We don't have it all together. We have been rescued. As Colossians said, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We are redeemed through the blood of Christ. So in Him, we are perfect in Him. But nevertheless, we do not have it all together. He does. And there is, as I started to say, there is an implicit call in these seven churches to deal with the flagrant sin in their midst. The theme this morning really should be our theme every single Sunday. This is another one of those passages that lets us hit this theme head on and directly, and it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Let me say it to you this way. Please keep this in mind. Jesus is Lord and head of the church, and our greatest need is to see him. Let me say it again. Jesus is Lord and head of the church, and our greatest need is to have a true vision of Him. Let's let that simple sentence be how we break things down today. So secondly, secondly this morning, we'll notice that our great need is to see Jesus. That our true need is to have a biblical vision of our Savior. And that means that first of all, we'll see that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Notice with me what the text says. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. There is a basic pattern to all of these seven letters with some slight deviation, but they all begin this way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing that we're thinking about is that Jesus is Lord and head of the church. I want you to think about this question. There's really not a question that's more important for a believer or for an unbeliever. And the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And I want you to see that at the beginning of each of these letters, we're just going to notice seven verses. It's the first verse written to each church. It's dictated to John, but it's it's from Jesus. It's a self-description of given by the risen Lord. Jesus is saying something about himself. And so to Ephesus, notice again in verse 1, the words of him, who is Jesus? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now look at the next church. That would be in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I want you to think about this question, who is Jesus? And I want you to let the scripture itself answer the question. He's the one who died and came to life. Look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Look at verse 18. This is church number four. This is a city called Thyatira. Chapter two, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. There's three more churches to go, but let me pause and point something out. If you were to look closely, not only would you see that each of these letters begin in the same way, dear friends, but you would notice that Jesus describes himself. Listen to me. Jesus describes himself in a unique way to each church to match what that church is going through. In all seven instances, because listen, because Jesus knows, which is something else that it says every time, I know, I know your works, I know what you're going through. Every single time, you will find, if you just dig a little bit deeper, that what Jesus says about himself matches what that specific church is going through. Let me just show you very quickly just one example, and again, that's Smyrna what we read earlier what does he say back in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2 what is the self description of the risen lord jesus in verse 8 of chapter 2 he says the words of the first and the last think about the privilege that john has here think about it. he's he's dictating a letter from the risen lord jesus Here's what I want you to say to them, John. I am the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And what are they going through? How about the end of verse 10? Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see how it matches? Do you see how our greatest need is to behold the Lord Jesus Christ? How our greatest need is not, first of all, to get to work for Jesus, start doing stuff for Jesus, but our first need is to, as one man said, to see and savor Jesus Christ. Every time he says something about himself that matches, that corresponds the very thing that that church is going through. Now, we need to finish the last three. Look at chapter 3. We've yet to notice Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're just letting these verses wash over us. Chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. How about verse 7? Philadelphia, this is one of those churches that's, by God's grace, doing pretty well. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one. Who is Jesus? He's the one who has the key of David. My friend, you need to answer this question. Who is Jesus? He's the one the Holy One. He opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. How about verse 14? And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Who is Jesus? Let the Scripture answer. We find it in 2-1, in 2-8, 2-12, 2-18, 3-1. 3.7, 3.14, let me summarize it in my own words. Let me summarize what we've just noticed in these words. Number one, he is the head of the body, the church. Wilson said that passage that he read was one of his favorites. You can't get any better if you're looking to say to focus on Jesus Christ. This is what we need to do. John, tell us, what do we need to do today? Give give me something to do. Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look away from yourself and look to Christ. He's the head of the body of the church, to use the language of Colossians. He is the crucified and risen one. And to use the language about God... Since Jesus is the divine Son of God, He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the one who has the sharp two edged sword. He is the Son of God with eyes like a flame of fire. He is the one who has the seven spirits and seven stars. He is the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David. He is the Amen, the firstborn of all creation. That's who he is. Do you know him? Do you, know, do you delight in him? Do you treasure him? Is he your everything? Let me point something else out to you. It's really simple, but it's, it opens our eyes. Friends, not only is it the case, as I've already pointed out, not only does he describe himself, the risen Lord Jesus, in a way that is particular to the needs of that church, whether it be, hey, you're in trouble. You need to repent or whether it be you're you're doing a good job. Press on. But also, listen, listen, also, every time he describes himself to these seven churches, it is from the vision that John received in chapter one. And I just want us to see in just a minute, not right this second, but in just a minute, I just want us to see that John has this vision of the risen Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. He beholds the glory of the Lamb and everything that he sees about Jesus in that vision. It's just the same thing that Jesus says about himself to the churches. Do you see? In that sense, there's nothing new under the sun. First of all, let me point something out to you, and that's in chapter 2, verse 4. Please notice this. John is dictating this letter from the risen Lord Jesus to the church at Ephesus, and he commends them, and he tells them what he... Uh I guess you would say appreciates, although it's him work, he's the one working in them to begin with. But then he does say in very serious terms, and he goes on to warn them that they might even cease to be a church. Listen, they might cease to be a church because of this. Verse four of chapter two. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I want you to see that. What's he talking about there when he says the love you ha- you've had at first? To what is he referring? This is ser- I have this against you. God help us. God help us to be aware of, of these warnings. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means... That you've, in the first place, at all lost your zeal for evangelism? Listen, this is is Hamilton. What is it that happens to people between the wedding day, like two weeks ago, right, guys? I was there. What is it that happens to people between the wedding day, so joyous, so earnest, so sincere? and the day the divorce papers are signed? What happens to parents between the day the child is born and the day they complain about that bothersome, frustrating brat? What happens to us between the day a loved one is diagnosed with some awful condition and the day that loved one whom we cherish becomes a burden? In each case, divorced spouses, frustrated parents, burdened family members. What happens is a loss of first love. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, what was once done from passionate fervor becomes little more than a duty or a chore. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, what was once done from passionate fervor and joy and... I think the words neophyte, just just a, a new lover, becomes a duty and a chore. Look at it again, verse 4. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I would say to you that that love you had at first, I think that can involve, I think it, it, it may very well involve love to one another. The Bible tells us that this in many ways is love for God, that we keep his commandments and that we love one another. I think it certainly involves a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. A pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, what is the answer? What is the answer? Verse 5. Does not begin first of all with your hands or with your feet. Verse 5 begins first of all not with your hands or with your feet but with your heart and with your mind. Remember Remember when the child was born. Remember when the, the family member of old, decrepit age. Remember how much you love them. Remember the day of your wedding. Remember the grace of God in your salvation. Remember the cross. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God loves the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is the love of God, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your first love? Remember, remember and repent. It's always safe to repent. Well, I would like to take at least just a few minutes to look with you at the end of chapter one. Our theme this morning, our theme is Jesus Christ. And let me remind you again that he is the head of the body of the church. He is the head of the body of the church And our greatest need is to have a true biblical vision of Jesus. Our greatest need is to see him. Verse 17. Of chapter one. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I'm not saying, uh, I guess I'm certainly not saying that we need to be slain in the spirit as it's commonly referred to. That can be quite unbiblical. I'm not saying that we have to have a physical manifestation like John did. And by the way, like so many others in the Bible have had, uh, John, uh, Revelation 1:17 is not new. It's all over the Bible. Think about Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. I'm not saying that we have to have a physical manifestation, a physical response to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But I am saying that in one way or another, our greatest need, yours and mine, is to see Jesus. It's to see Jesus. Let me give you a couple of points in closing. And the first is this, we will fall down and worship him because we see him for who he is. When we see Jesus rightly, we will fall down and worship him because we see him for who he is. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Remember what I said as I begin to read verse 10. Everything that John sees in his vision about Jesus corresponds to what the churches hear. And the vision comes first. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Think Daniel chapter 7. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Think Daniel's description of God the Father, even though this is about Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And notice again, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When we truly see Jesus, we will fall down and worship him because we see him for who he is. It's not to say that what's happening in the beginning of verse 17 is necessarily worship. I think we can apply it that way. But John is, is rightfully in dread because he is holy. My friend, when you and I see Jesus for who he is, when God opens our eyes, when God opens your eyes, not only will you fall down and worship him, not only will you fall down and worship him, but you will hear words of grace. You will hear words of gospel grace. But he laid his right hand on me, verse 17, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, or you could say I am the alpha and the omega. We're going to sing at the pool today, Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. These uh, these two words, I say, are gospel words. When Jesus says to John, fear not, we will hear words of gospel grace. We will obey what he says to us. If we have a true vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will obey him out of love for him. He says in verse 18, notice this with me. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Right, therefore, I have a job for you. I have a job for you, Christian. I have work for you to do. John, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. We will fall down and worship him. Please listen. We will fall down and worship him. We will hear words of gospel grace. Fear not. We will obey him. We will serve the church. We will serve the church. That's what John's doing in writing these letters. We will serve the church and we will delight and glory in him who is our greatest treasure. What in the world are those seven lampstands? I heard a voice. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I saw the seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands. And I saw one in the midst like a son of man. It's the risen Lord Jesus among his people. The lampstands are the churches. Let us respond and let us by grace respond the way that John did in these verses. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Ignatius. Who wrote this last book of the Bible? Not Ignatius. Who wrote the last book of the Bible? The Apostle John. Ignatius was one of John's students. He was a bishop of the church in Antioch, very early in the church. And he faced suffering and death. And here's what he said. Let fire... And the cross, let the companions of wild beasts, let breakings of bones and tearing of members, let the shattering in pieces of the whole body and all the wicked torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me enjoy Jesus Christ. May the same be said of us, even in the face of death. Press on, press on through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to receive your word as the hymn that we sing says, take your word and plant it deep in us. Lord, whether it be perhaps prostrating ourselves on the ground before you or the reminder that all of life is lived before you, help us to remember that we live before the face of God. That it is with you that we will have to do on the last day. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the one who died and who lives. That he suffered in the place of sinners. That he was crucified and that he rose from the dead and that he is coming again. May we see him as our savior, dying as our substitute. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.